to walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, this month, the choices that are and are not available to us to defend our country should it become necessary. Around the world, various militaries are grappling with the pace of change in geopolitics, in technology, with their labour force. After decades of relative peace in our particular communities... It doesn't feel settled at all. Remember our former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd dubbing this the decade of living dangerously. What is clear are big questions like these. How will Australian taxpayers' money be spent as wisely as possible to get both value for money plus maximum security as fast as possible? Well, we'll tease these apart because they can overwhelm and we're not in that business. And, of course, this week Defence Minister Richard Miles announced this comprehensive strategic review of our defence force, uh, the the biggest in three decades. So three specialists are with me now to help us understand. Alan DuPont, Alan Beam and Melissa Conley-Tyler. Alan DuPont is a veteran defence analyst. Alan Beam has much experience in senior public service roles in defence and a former minister to Penny Wong, former advisor to Penny Wong. And Melissa Conley-Tyler is an ex-diplomat, now program lead at a relatively new venture, the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. Welcome to you all. Thank you, Geraldine. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Uh, In announcing this review of the ADF, which is to be conducted by former Defence Force Chief Sir Angus Houston and former Labor Defence Minister Stephen Smith, here's what Houston had to say about the reasoning behind it. It's absolutely imperative that we review the current strategic circumstances, which I rate the worst I've ever seen in my career and lifetime. And here's how Defence Minister Richard Miles summed it up. Given our strategic circumstances, what is it that we want our Defence Force to do on behalf of our nation in this moment? Now, the review will look at the ADF's structure, posture and preparedness uh, for the next decade. And it's led, designed to be the most searching since the famed Dib report of 1986. Alan DuPont, decode this for us, if you would, please. Yes, OK. So what it really means is that the Albanese government is going to look really right across the board of the way in which our Defence Force is structured to see if it's optimally configured for the new challenges ahead, particularly the Chinese challenge in the region. That's pretty clear. Um, what it won't include is a new strategy, and the argument is that the government is happy with the last strategic update that was done in 2020. So they're going to go with the actual strategy as spelled out in that document. But what they want to do look at is what do we need to change about our defence force I think, to make it more lethal and more capable of defending Australia in the new security environment, which is much more challenging, as Angus Houston has pointed out. And I would agree with him that it is the most challenging security environment I have seen in my lifetime as well. So I I would absolutely endorse what he said. That's the big challenge. And the the big question coming out of all this, of course, is, is it going to be affordable? Does this mean the defence budget's going to go up? Or is the Albanese government going to reconfigure the pie and uh, with the existing budget? That's the unknown. 
Mm. Yes, because I mean, some people have said that um, we could actually um, go for proven designs in our defence procurement that were already in service. But the government, the previous government, went for the bespoke and boutique approach. Now, I again would like you to decode that. Is that a reasonable observation? Yes, I wouldn't quite put it that way. I think the problem has been twofold. One is we've been fighting all sorts of small sort of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism wars around the world for the last 20 years, and our defence force has been configured for that, essentially operating with the United States. So now we have to actually um, restructure that force to defend Australia's interests in our own region against potentially a major power. So that's the first problem. So I don't the argument that Australia... Uh, is a boutique force is probably, I don't think, is quite an accurate encapsulation. The problem is that Australia has taken, it takes too long to acquire the capabilities we need. So I think the business model for acquiring new technology, new weapon systems and all the enabling infrastructure needs to be looked at and changed to bring the private sector in so that you can get the capabilities we need much more quickly and more cheaply. What sort of equipment do you say the ADF should be looking at or reconsidering? Yeah, so I think it's there's pretty much agreement among most of the commentariat on this point that we just don't have enough lethal weapons in our armament. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you can see that this is the future of warfare, unfortunately. These precision-guided munitions, uh, they're quite expensive, Uh, You need to have large infantries of them because you exhaust them pretty quickly when you have a conventional war. I mean, basically, uh, even with all the countries supporting Ukraine, uh, you know, they've run out, they've run down the stockpiles of existing munitions pretty quickly, and so have the Russians. So Australia is far worse off. We essentially don't have any stockpiles of these missiles, uh, and we, we still don't yet produce them ourselves. So that's one obvious area that we've got to do something about. And the second thing is the speed with which we acquire these new systems. How, how long is it going to take us to do this? If there's going to be a, an issue in the, in the uh, South China Sea or a confrontation with China over Taiwan, that is likely to occur, most of us think, in the next five to eight years. Uh, how long is it going to take us to get our nuclear submarines and all these other things? Much longer than that. That's just not acceptable. Mm. So what is it that we can get quickly uh, and strategically to make our force a much more effective defence force for these new circumstances. Alan Beam, what do you see uh, behind this landmark strategic review? Let me begin with the remarks of of Angus Houston. Uh, uh, Angus is much, obviously much younger than I think he is because in my lifetime, which may be somewhat longer than Alan's or Angus's, there have been the Korean War, uh, the Malayan emergency and all that happened there, the the confrontation with Indonesia and the Vietnam War, not to mention our excursions to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, all of these uh, were, were very significant in their time, um, particularly the Korean War, and yet we are looking at evolving circumstances through the prism of history. Now, history always informs the present, but it's very, very poor guide to the future. 
So what I think is the problem here is that we are looking to the north, we're extremely worried about it, we're presuming that uh, China is going to be uh, not only a, a hegemon but is also going to be a highly militarised one using military force against its neighbours and our fortiori against us. Now, I, I don't know that any of that is demonstrable. Um, I think it's a good thing to be concerned about the direction that China is taking, as indeed we should be very concerned about the direction that the United States appears to be taking in North Asia, um, particularly when you have freelanced foreign policy being conducted by the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So but I, I suppose think, um, underneath all this is, is there, are we exposed? There certainly doesn't seem, as I said, it doesn't seem settled. So even if, if it turns out that a lot of the worries are slightly misguided, they may not be, um, should we assume that, that we are okay when we're quite clearly not, not properly equipped, Alan Beam? No, look, we should always be alert. But uh, to think that uh, we, we should have faith-based policy, that is, that we will always be protected by the United States, and then to think that there's a magic pudding that's going to provide uh, an unspecified list of new sorts of lethality in our force structure, I think is all pretty pie in the sky. You mean uh, cost? You mean that it's just we've just got to talk, start talking about the cost per GDP of our defence budget? And it's not just as a proportion of GDP. I mean, we've got to talk about opportunity cost as well. I mean, here we've got a new government in with a, uh, a budget deficit overhang about, the, about one third of the size of our GDP. We haven't had that since the Second World War. And we're already talking about virtually limitless spending, spending on nuclear-propelled submarines, American or British, uh, the acquisition of long-range missiles, what, throwing 100 kilograms of munitions uh, 5,000 kilometres away? Is that what we're talking about? Melissa, I wonder how you think, as an ex-diplomat, do you think we should be prepared for a shift in thinking or debate? Should we be, the, the average Australian be caring about this more? Look, I, uh, as a, someone who has watched diplomats a lot, um, I, I think the average Australian should be caring about this. Uh, I have to say, I don't feel I find it a surprise. You know, the, the ALP went to the election with a platform saying that they would do this and Richard Miles has been flagging it in his speeches in Washington and in India. Um, what I find interesting is that it's become more ambitious over time. So in the election, it was just going to be a force posture review. Um, Which and, means and what, where you place your force. where you place your physically forces. Place you know, your force, right. where are they physically place so they're ready to be called upon when they're needed. And, and of course, that's a difficult process in itself because there's a lot of, you know, local politics in those issues. Mm. Um, but this has moved now into looking at structure. You know, what is the capability that we, we have and what do we need to have? And it's also moved to being independent. And that says to me that the government actually wants to reconsider some decisions that have already been made um, and need somebody outside with heft, like a former Minister of Defence and former Chief of, of Defence Force, to actually be more wide-ranging and more ambitious in the questions it asks. I mean, the thing I would really like it to focus on is 
is actually um, thinking of all the arms of statecraft. I mean, the way the Australian planning process works is very much in silos. You have a defence white paper, you have uh, an uh, international development policy, and you have a defence strategic update and now a defence strategic review. Um, in some countries, like in the UK, it's actually now an integrated process. So the UK has an overarching strategy that looks at its defence, its diplomacy, its development and trade, and gives a vision that they all want to go towards. And for me these days, I mean, given a lot of the threats, uh, grey zone sort of threats, coercion, competition, you've got to be clear that it's not just defence that deals with those. Our development, our diplomacy are equally important and we need to put all of them together when we're thinking about how do we counter those threats. I think you, this is your, your point too, isn't it, Alan Beam, in your, in your latest book, No, Ex no Enemies, No Friends? It is. I think Melissa has put it much better than I did, though. Um, it's, it really is a, a, a very complex problem that requires um, answers that come from so many different dimensions. And we can't imagine uh, a very strong defence capability or a powerful force posture unless we have an absolutely powerful economy, because the strength of the economy and the strength of our defence force are deeply linked. And our economy is, at the moment, 13th biggest economy. But, you know, over the next two decades, our economy is going to slip beyond the first 20. And we've got to think all of that through. And hence, an emphasis on statecraft rather than simply an emphasis on force planning is, I think, critically essential. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are just likely to spend a heap of money on something which we find to be totally useless. Well, now, um, Alan DuPont, clearly Alan Beam is referring to, and this is underlying this whole discussion, the, the huge AUKUS plans, you know, for um, subs that, well, they may not come by the sound of it until sort of 2045. Do you think this strategic review will even tilt at that particular contract? Because there's, there's another review coming out, I think, just after it, a separate review of the AUKUS plans. Yes, Geraldine, it definitely will, and it will do it in, in this way. So uh, Melissa is quite right that the, um, the original idea of just looking at where we, where we actually station our forces is now grown, so we're now having to look at the capability as well. Okay. Now, AUKUS comes into this in two ways. First of all, the headline of AUKUS is nuclear submarines. So the government needs to understand what submarines we're going to get, how much they'll cost and how long it will take before they're delivered, right? So that will be a separate freestanding assessment report that goes to Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, and he will be wanting to make a decision about that in March, which is about the same time when the defence review will be presented. So the government will look at these two together. And it won't only be nuclear submarines, there'll be a whole range of things to pick up on Alan Beam's point about whole of government joined up capability. So AUKUS includes uh, technological cooperation with the United States and the UK on everything from artificial intelligence to uh, radars and all kinds of enabling uh, parts of the system you need to make the Defence Force work effectively and, and more broadly than that. So that's the joined up part. Now, the key point is, of course, how much is all this going to cost? Mm. Uh, and the government, in fairness, the Albanese government can't answer that question until it decides which submarines we're going to get and how we're going to get them and all these other reviews are done. So this is an important first step to making sensible decisions about what it is we can afford to buy over what period of time and whether there is an argument to increase the defence budget 
or you just make better use of the existing one. And that's really the way it's going to play out. Such big questions. I mean, they they have, I think, reiterated since coming into government, they have no plans. I think this is it's a, it was a little bit oblique to change that 2% of the GDP budget for defence. But I mean, it's, pr- uh, yeah, you know, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to come under pressure. Look, some observers like, say, Hugh White, speaking here on RN's Big Ideas two weeks ago in a very interesting um, discussion, he believes that other rational, achievable strategies exist, which would be both cheaper, quicker and more agile than the AUKUS plans. Here he is with my colleague Paul Barclay. And the reason I think submarines are so important is that I think they are one of the most cost-effective ways of achieving what is the most important strategic operational objective for us, and that is preventing other countries projecting power by sea towards us or or our close neighbours. That's what submarines do. They, they stop other people using the sea by going out there and sinking ships. And the, one of the differences between my vision of Australia's defence needs and almost everybody else's is that I don't think we need six or eight submarines or even 12 submarines. I think we need 24 or 36 because the numbers really count. And I think we just need to get a lot of submarines out there into our into our maritime approaches. He was basically saying that, you know, if his thesis, if he follows through his thesis that we can't really rely on the Americans uh, when push comes to shove, um, then we have to say the huge question, could we conceivably defend ourselves? Which, of course, has bedeviled us, you know, ever since European settlement. And he felt that it was possible to argue yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, and, and I think he was correct in that. And it's not the first time somebody has said that. Um, when when uh, Kim Beasley was minister, he commissioned Paul Dibb, who happened to be uh, an officer of the Defence Department, not an external consultant, um, to conduct what was a really profound review. And one of the questions that Dibb had to deal with was, what kinds of conflicts are we going to have to be able to deal with from our own resource base? And it's a very important question. And at the moment, we seem to be very, very confused about that. Uh, When the minister was in Washington and speaking to CSIS just a couple of weeks back, um, he, he was tilting in the direction of high intensity conflict. You can call that general war at a distance quite remote from Australia, like six, 7,000 kilometres away. Now, once you're into one of those and you want to be able to initiate combat on your own account, then Hughes' upper figure of 36 actually comes into play. And that is a vast expenditure. Um, it would It would dwarf anything we've ever spent in Australia before. And and that's really the question we've got to address. Okay. What are we going to spend all this money on and just how credible is it? Well, in fact, Alan DuPont, you pointed out in a recent Australian article that it's maritime power in our region that 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 matters. Um, China's been doing what superpowers do and rapidly building up its navy in particular. What scale is it at now? Yes, okay. Well, so the sort of the board figures are basically that China has about 350 uh, battle-ready ships compared to the US, which is 297. By 2030, it will probably have a navy the size of the US Navy and the Indian Navy combined. Uh, so we're talking 450 ships. Now, this is a crude measure, but it's one reasonable measure of the relative balance of power and the weighting uh, that each country brings to the table strategically. So so the bottom line is that the Chinese have, have come from virtually nowhere in 20 years to building the most powerful, 
uh, blue water navy in the world almost. Probably the US is still ahead of it globally, but over the next five or 10 years, uh, if you project forward at the current rates of progress of shipbuilding and so on and dollars spent, that's where we'll be. Now, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but that's that's the logic of if things continue as they are. May I just uh, say one thing? Mm. I'd like to just come back, Geraldine, if I may, on mm. Hugh White's uh, prognosis, mm. and I think it's important to talk about this. I just think that um, Hugh's scenario is is unaffordable and it's not politically realistic to talk about 24 to 36 submarines. Uh, the simple reason is that the government will have to politically go with the legacy force it has and work out how it's going to implement AUKUS because it's signed on to the AUKUS agreement, so it's got to make it work. It's no way in the world can I see it going down the track of a completely different scenario, which is only going to add enormous additional cost to what already is an under-stressed defence budget. So I don't think that is a realistic proposition that we're going to get large numbers of submarines along those lines. So, And, and the other mm -hmm. point I wanted to make just very quickly is this issue about reliance on the United States. Look, um, if we were to have a completely independent uh, defence posture and we fund everything ourselves, including all the things we get on the cheap from the United States, it would completely blow the defence budget and the national budget out of the water. We'd be having to spend probably 5 to 6% of GDP on defence, not 2%. So... Um, that I don't think that's a realistic scenario for Australia, that we get a lot out of the relationship with the United States on the cheap, world-class capabilities and technology. The US is not going to suddenly uh, ditch us, nor are we going to ditch the US, because we're all signed on to the US alliance, including the Albanese government. Yeah, but so he, question, he, he makes a point. We thought that in 1941 with the Brits, and look what happened. That, that's true, but my, my, argument, my argument would be we need to do as much as we possibly can for ourselves. So I'm all for or greater self-reliance, but that's not the same as an independent, completely independent defence capability. It makes sense for us to have, as a, a relatively small nation or a medium-sized nation, uh, powerful allies and friends, and that's historically been the argument that's been made in, in a bipartisan way for the last 100 years, and I don't see that change. So the question is, how do we get more out of the relationship with the United States and other friends and allies to reinforce the capabilities that we have as a small country because trying to defend a continent the size of Australia, 25 million people, is almost impossible yeah. to do by ourselves. Mm -hmm. Look, can, well, I know, can Melissa, you just... Can I, I come I, in? Yeah, OK. <laughs> yes, well, Geraldine, I was just going to say the thing we haven't discussed much yet is actually the submarine capability gap. So we've got the issue that we're trying to keep the current Collins class in the water and functional as long as possible, but it looks like there's going to be a gap between that and the earliest possible date that we might receive AUKUS nuclear-propelled submarines. Marines. Unless we buy things and, from off the shelf from Spain or France. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing, you know. And I think that's really <laughs> where it's coming from. You know, ALP in, in the election discussion, you know, was really talking up that as a, as a very big concern. And so it, it seems to me that that might be a real focus in the, the, the reviews are looking at. Yes. I mean, th th it is interesting, uh, I think I'll put it to Alan Beam, that there are, even even just late this week, the French, and I thought this would happen, that Macron cleverly would say, well, look, you know, we can reinstitute, uh, we can reinstitute our uh, contract because you're having a little difficulties with delays, but it'd have to be built in Cherbourg, not Adelaide, which <laughs> brings into into to, <laughs> to play all sorts of things. Um, so, and, and I might 
add, uh, there's also a very interesting piece that Brian Tui, the veteran journalist, wrote in April this year, completely, we were all sort of absorbed in elections at the time, about developments at Pine Gap, just thinking what Alan Dupont said, um, that there are upgrades in those facilities there which will integrate us even more completely with the US military power. Um, Now, I wonder... You know, it does make you wonder, I mean, there's obviously real yield to that, but does it make us more of a target, Alan Bean, do you think? No, I don't think it does, Geraldine. And and I, I think one of the things that's really important that we all understand is that this is inherently complex and many of the elements in it actually relate to each other chaotically. So there are no binaries that you can hang on. I mean, the issue of independent national defence and our relationship with the United States and with Britain for that matter, they're not alternatives. They all simply fit in together in a much more comprehensive approach to how we conduct national defence. As for AUKUS, we're already doing all the things that AUKUS has mentioned in its communique. By the way, it's not an agreement at this stage. There's nothing signed. It's not a treaty or anything. So we already do those things and we've been doing them for, in the case of the United States, for 80 years and with Britain for nearly 200. So these are these are not new things. They're just political re-expressions of things that have been happening for a long time. To come back, though, to the real issue... China is growing its force in the way that Alan Dupont said. And we all think that that's a very dangerous thing for it to do because it will have forced supremacy, at least at some levels, over the United States Navy. But if you look at the sorts of things that China's acquiring, they're predicated on a comprehensive defence of China rather than power projection to assert China over everybody else. Does China have the capacity to assert itself? Of course it does. Is it going to do so? Is that its strategic intention? I think there is no evidence at all that supports that view. The only evidence we've got is that they would have the potential to do it if they were to change their policy. All right, I'm going so to give Melissa... it becomes an issue of statecraft. Of statecraft, this is your point. Look, I'm going to give Melissa the final word. I, I mean... How do we join in this debate of specialists, really, Melissa? Uh, how is this something the average Australian can... It has to care about it, obviously, but how does it join in or can't it? Yeah, look, um, I think think as citizens we all should be uh, both informing ourselves and using our voices um, whenever we can on these issues. Um, I suppose if I've got a final point, the, my final point would be working with the region. Um, if you're talking about Australia's security, one of the key things is to work with the major Southeast Asian states and to see it as shared security, as in security with rather than from Asia. Uh, And I think there's a lot of work to be done there still. So, you know, this week, for example, Indonesia made a submission to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review expressing genuine concerns about diversion of the um, weapons-grade material that would be be powering AUKUS submarines. And I think we've got to work a lot with the region to make clear that, you know, we we have all of the safeguards in place, we're not trying to start an arms race. It's all about working together to to keep that uh, stability and peace in the region that we all benefit from. So I I think uh, we shouldn't think of it just as ourselves alone. We should be thinking of it as a regional challenge that a number of other countries share. All right, look, thank you very much. (laughs) I think we'll be talking about this quite a lot up to March, (laughs) March and beyond. I really thank you all for your time. Alan Dupont, Alan Beam and Melissa Connolly-Tyler. 
Thank it's you, a pleasure, Geraldine. Thank, Thank you, Geraldine. And Alan Dupont is Chief Executive of the Cognoscenti Group. Alan Beam is from the Australia Institute. His recent book, No Enemies, No Friends, uh, is a uh, upswell publication. And Melissa Connolly-Tyler is Program Lead at the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. A lot of text coming through, but there's one. Will any of our panellists refer to the significance of today's date in this discussion. That's Joe from Warrnambool. Of course, this was the date in 1945 when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. I didn't fully realise it. Thank you, Joe. Um, and of course, there's those big non-proliferation talks underway in Washington as in New York as we speak as well. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.